Thank you for visiting Crossland Community Church. We are located in Terre Haute, Indiana. For more information, please visit us online at coccchurch.com. Let's listen to one of our Sunday morning messages. Well, good morning and welcome to Cross Lane. I want to start by uh, thanking Kyle for filling in for me last week. Ryan and I went to the National Youth Workers Convention. I understand that I was referred to as a slack wad last week. Is that correct? <clears throat> I walked in on Monday morning and Parley uh, greeted me by saying, well, hello, big dog. Um, I got all kinds of names last week. It was good to get away, but it's good to be back. And I, I um, Kyle just does such a great job, and, and it's, uh, it's, no, it's no sweat anymore to leave. We have good people that can fill in, and uh, it's nice to know that. Hey, uh, we have some honored guests among us this morning, and they don't know I'm going to do this, but uh, Corey and Cassidy, I'm going to ask you to stand up, please. Corey and Cassidy Fountain uh, are their family to us, but they are also, stand up for a minute, let them see what you look like. They also serve as missionaries for team expansion. We support them. Uh, you support them uh, through your giving. The church gives them money uh, to do what they do. And um, I have them stand so that you can see them, you can recognize them, and, and you can approach them and ask them about the work that they do and uh, get to know them a little bit. Cassidy was in my youth group when I was the youth pastor. Okay, you guys can sit down now. She's chomping at the bit. And... Uh, one of the best kids I ever had in youth group. Cassidy uh, Easton at the time was just a joy to have in youth group, and uh, I love him dearly, so it's good to have you guys here. Um, Kyle used an interesting expression just before he got off the stage this morning. He talked about uh, the stain of regret. That is a great phrase. Is there anybody, and I don't want you to raise your hands, okay, but is there anybody in the room this morning that does not understand and does not know that personally in their own life, the stain of regret, the, the idea that, man, there's, if, I could have, if I could have a do-over, that would be so good. If I could have that back, you know, I, I wish I could. We're going to talk a little bit this morning about uh, not necessarily the stain of regret, but what's been done about our stains. And uh, it's been said that the Bible is a, uh, the main theme of the Bible is that Christianity is a religion of rescue i don't really like the the word religion applied to christianity uh, all that much because christianity to me is more about relationship than it is about religion but james refers to uh, true religion being that the care of widows and orphans and so i guess to some extent uh, we would have to make that application i want to read just some passages of scripture to you this morning to kind of get us started and i'll just warn you there's a lot of scripture in this this morning this is a uh, this is a somewhat of a, this is not typical Brett sermon, okay? This is, um, I don't have a bunch of funny stories for you, and, and uh, I hope you're still entertained, but this is one that I need you to lock in, okay? This is one we're going to see lots of scripture, and I want the weight of what's being said in these passages to kind of hit you full force so that you get the full impact of what's been done for that stain of regret that you and I have. Um, so we start in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Keep in mind, these are, these are verses that illustrate the rescuing nature of Jesus. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. In Luke chapter 19, we read, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. First Timothy, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And then 1 John, and we have seen and testify 
that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the results of sin. What does sin do to us? What, what are the consequences whenever we misbehave or when we don't get it right? We came up with three things. First of all, it cuts us off from God, which is a very bad thing. The scariest thought in the world is to be cut off from God for an eternity, and uh, sin can certainly do that uh, eternally if we don't um, come to him and, and basically throw ourselves at the foot of the cross and, and uh, receive forgiveness. It can be an eternal thing. But even for those of us who are Christians, it can at times become a temporary separation as we struggle and deal with the sin in our life and as it drives a wedge sometimes between us and God. We also said that, that one of the results of sin is that it, um, it enslaves us, it makes us captive. And uh, you probably could give your own story. I've got plenty of stories in my own life where sin has made me captive to something and I always hate it when that's the case. And the minute you look up and realize, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in bondage to this thing, um, that's when, you know, generally speaking, that's when we start to take steps of repentance, when we realize that we are uh, uh, in captivity to our sin. And then finally, we said that sin, one of the results of sin is that um, it causes conflict in our relationships with other people. There may be someone in your life that you don't have the relationship with that you would like, and it's highly possible that the reason for that is some sin somewhere. Someone has done something, has upset you, or maybe you've upset someone, and that relationship that you long to have is not what it could be simply because sin got in the way. Paul described his ministry as a ministry, <clears throat> a ministry of reconciliation. Other, other places in Scripture, he refers to his message as the gospel of reconciliation. Um, he made it quite clear that the, 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 the author of our faith, God, is out to repair and to reconcile us back to him. Now, I'm using that word reconciliation. That's one of those big church words that when a preacher uses it, typically some people will just reach up in the, in the stereo of their mind and just turn off the, the volume. They hear a word like reconciliation and they think, ah, it, preacher word, I don't want to hear preacher words and he's not going to define that. Let me define for you what reconciliation really means. In Romans... Um, chapter 5 he uses this word reconciliation but it's also translated a different way the word that's used in Romans 5 is the word atonement now you hear that and you think okay another preacher word okay you got reconciliation and atonement neither one of those make any sense to me atonement is an action by which two conflicting parts are made one so what sin does is sin comes along and it separates us from God. We have two conflicting parts. When atonement happens, what happens is those two things become one. They are made one. You might use this expression. You know, I've taught you um, that uh, righteousness means a right standing before God. And I taught you that justification means just as if I'd never sinned. When you hear the word atonement, I want you to think at one At one means putting two things that are in conflict together and they become one paul says that this atonement or this at one has been re, uh, achieved through jesus and so sin caused an estrangement the cross the crucifixion of christ has accomplished atonement for us sin brought enmity but the cross brought peace sin brought a gulf between man and god and and the cross bridged the gap that sin brought and sin broke the fellowship and, and the cross restored it. Paul said in Romans, and I, I quote this every time I talk to someone about coming to Christ, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But is the cross necessary for salvation? 
is it really vital to Christianity? What exactly was accomplished on the cross? And why was that necessary in the first place? Today I want to consider really the centrality of the cross to our life and to our faith. And to fully understand it, you have to go back to the Old Testament. uh, Because from the very beginning, uh, the religion of the Old Testament was sacrificial in nature. What you see on the cross is you see a sacrifice happening. I don't know if that's ever dawned on you, but that, that's a sacrifice for your sins and for mine. And that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Testament. Very early in the Old Testament, when Abel brought a, 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 a sacrifice, a lamb from his flock, and offered it to God, and the Bible says that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Worshippers brought sacrifices to him, altars were built, Uh, animals were killed and the blood was shed long before the law of moses this kind of thing was going on people were offering sacrifices to god the sacrifices would eventually become formalities and at some point they would really begin to lose their meaning in the eyes and the hearts of the people so that people began to offer sacrifices to god and those sacrifices meant nothing that continued all the way up until the uh, 70 a.d and the destruction of the temple in jerusalem the Jews were very familiar with the different sacrifices that, that were to be offered. It was, this was uh, drilled into them. They knew all about the sacrifices, and they learned all the fundamental, fundamental lessons that went with it. Leviticus chapter 17 tells us that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And then you go to Hebrews in the New Testament. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. These Old Testament sacrifices foreshadowed the sacrifice of Jesus. I had a Bible college professor that was very fond of saying that on every page of the Old Testament, you will see a foreshadowing of Jesus. He just talked about all the time, all the different places in the Old Testament. We'd, we'd go through our Old Testament studies, and he would stop down, and he would say, now I want you to see Jesus in these pages. And if you read through the Old Testament, and you don't see Jesus, you're not looking deep enough, because Jesus appears all through the Old Testament. The prophets and the psalmists would put this into words. We would detect him in Zechariah's shepherd who is struck down and whose sheep are scattered abroad. We would see him in Daniel's prince, the one who had been uh, cut off. And we find him at the end of Isaiah in what's called the servant song, the prophecy of Isaiah, the suffering servant of Jehovah, the despised man of sorrows who is wounded for our transgressions and is like a sheep led to slaughter and bears the sins of so many. Jesus knew himself to be a son of destiny. He recognized that the scriptures were being fulfilled and were bearing witness to him. And it was, it, he also understood that it was uh, in the expectations of the people uh, that, that, that the Messiah would come and fulfill all these uh, different philo- um, prophecies. The turning point really came for Jesus in his ministry at Caesarea Philippi when Jesus came there and was immediately uh, to hear the, the confession of Peter who, um, who would say that Jesus was the Christ. At that point, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day to be raised to life. This must was always with Jesus. He always understood that this is what he must do. He was about this work. He had come to do a very special thing. He had come to suffer. He had come to die. He had come to make atonement. He had come to be the sacrifice for us. The importance of the cross, which the Old Testament foretold, and that Jesus taught, is fully recognized in the New Testament authors. The authors of the four Gospels devote an inordinate amount of space and time 
to talking about the last week and the crucifixion, uh, the end of the life of Jesus. In, in uh, Matthew's gospel, you see two-fifths of the gospel of Matthew is devoted to the last week and the death of Christ. In Mark, it's three-fifths of the gospel. In, in uh, Luke, it's one-third of the book of Luke is devoted to the last week and the crucifixion of Christ. And then you get to the book of John, and almost half of the book of John is devoted to the Passion Week and to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you ask yourself, why is this the case? It's because this is very important. It's central to our faith. It's what our faith is built on, and these are very important days that are chronicled for us. Uh, in fact, John's gospel is sometimes by scholars, it's, it's uh, broken up into two parts. They identify the first part as the book of signs. They identify the second part as the book of the passion. It may be implied in the gospels, but it's stated straightforward in the epistles and most evidently by Paul. Paul never got tired of reminding his readers of the cross. Listen to Paul, different places in the New Testament where Paul wrote about the cross. Galatians, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Then in 1 Corinthians, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And in 1 Corinthians 15, For what I received I passed on to you as, for, as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. The rest of the New Testament is, is full of the same emphasis on the cross. We'll look at Peter a little later. Hebrews says Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Think about the idea of Christ doing something about your sin by the sacrifice of himself. By the time we get to the mysterious book of Revelation, we get a glimpse of the glorified Christ in heaven, not only as the one that's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah, but also as the Lamb that is standing as though it had been slain. And we hear a multitude of saints and angels singing praise. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So from the first chapters of Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation, we can trace what some have called a scarlet thread of the sacrifices of, of Christ. This morning, however, I want to take a look specifically at some of the things that Peter taught about the crucifixion of Jesus. What Peter has to say is important. Because he was a member of the inner circle, he was one of the three that got to spend a pretty significant amount of time with Jesus, uh, along with uh, James and John. And he is li as likely as anybody um, to have grasped and understood what Jesus had to say about his own life and his own death. I also want us to listen to Peter because at the very beginning, he was pretty reluctant to accept this idea of the necessity of the, of the sufferings of Christ. Um, he, he greatly resisted the idea that Jesus would have to die. And it was Peter, if you remember, who was the one in the garden who drew a knife to defend Jesus in the garden. Only after the resurrection did Peter really start to understand the necessity of the sufferings of Christ. Persecution is the background to much of what Peter had to say. Back in, in that time, there was an emperor named Nero, and uh, Nero really did not like Christians very much. Uh, that is probably a huge understatement he was hostile to christians and uh, many were becoming fearful their hearts were failing for christ violence had already occurred uh, toward christians and many people feared that the worst was yet to come it was a, a very uh, scary time for christians peter's advice is pretty straightforward and he says that christian servants um, 
He said that if Christian servants are mistreated by pagans, uh, that they should they should um, let let themselves be sure that they don't deserve the treatment they're getting. In other words, you know, if you're going to be mistreated, make sure that you don't deserve it. It's almost as if he tells people up front, "Hey, it's going to happen." Just make sure that when it does happen, it's not something that you've got coming to you. It's not a credit to be punished uh, for wrongdoing. But he said, let them suffer for the righteousness' sake. They were not to resist. They were not to retaliate. They were told to submit. Now, I, I do weddings uh, in the summertime usually, and um, one of the things that I'll do in most weddings is I'll talk from Ephesians chapter 5 about how Paul calls women to submit. Uh, what I leave out but then come back and make sure that I highlight is that Paul really calls both men and women to submit to one another um, but one of the points I make whenever I talk about this submission this this woman's submission role to her husband is that no one likes to be told to submit I mean nobody likes to have someone look at him and say hey you're supposed to submit and so when Peter uh, makes reference to our sufferings and he says i want you to i don't want you to retaliate i don't want you to try and get back on somebody i don't i don't want you i want you to submit to the to the ill treatment that you receive we we hear that especially in america we hear that and we think that's not right that's not our portion that's not uh, the way we're supposed to be to think that we're supposed to submit to the mistreatment of someone else but that's exactly what peter had to say for us listen to this this is first peter four therefore since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. I want to kind of come back on that same attitude uh, part. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. One of the things that Jesus did is that in his suffering, Christ left for us an example. He gave us an example of how we are to respond. The Greek word, I highlighted the, the, the phrase there, same attitude. That Greek word that Peter uses there is unique to the, old, to, uh, to the New Testament. It, it gives the word picture of a teacher who was going to teach her kids spelling or teach them the alphabet, and she had gone or he had gone and written out all the letters the way they were supposed to look and handed that to the student. The student would then take the book that had been handed down to them from the teacher and they would perfectly mimic the letters that they saw in the book. That's the phrase, that's the, the picture that Peter paints when he uh, writes that particular passage of scripture. The word is an interesting one coming from Peter. This is a man who had boasted very pridefully that he would follow Jesus anywhere, but when crunch time came, uh, the Bible says that he followed from afar and that's being really pretty nice to Peter. But it would be off the uh, shore of Galilee where Peter would hear Jesus invite him again to follow me. And Peter was, was urging his readers now to join them as he tried to follow Jesus more obediently. The challenge of the cross is uncomfortable for us today in the 21st century. It's as uncomfortable today as it was in the first century. The, the unique thing is that the, the, the cross is as relevant today as it was in the first century. We're told to bear unjust suffering we're told to overcome evil with good and there stands the cross inviting us to accept injury to love our enemies and to leave the outcome to god the death of jesus is more than an inspiring example though if it if it weren't any more than that then there are an awful lot of passages in scripture that wouldn't make uh, very much sense to us. There are strange things that are said in Scripture that if all the, the, the cross represented was an example for us, then there are a bunch of passages that wouldn't make sense. Mark 10, 45, 
says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That would mean nothing if all the cross represented was, a, was a, an example for us. Jesus talked about his shed blood and what he called the blood of the covenant. That phrase would make no sense at all if all the cross was was an example for us. He talked about forgiveness of sins. He said that, uh, that through the cross, sins would be forgiven. There is no redemption in an example. I like the way John Stott put it. A pattern cannot secure a pardon. So if, if all the cross was was an example for us to, to endure suffering, then there's an awful lot of the New Testament that just doesn't make any sense. A pattern does not save you. That what goes on on the cross is something uh, that is very relevant to your soul and to mine. Not only would much of the Gospels not make sense if the death of Jesus was purely an example, but our own human need would remain unsatisfied. We need more than an example. We need a Savior, and that's exactly what's going on in Jesus' death. An example can stir our imagination. It can kindle our uh, idealism, and it can strengthen our resolve. But an example cannot cleanse us of our sins. It cannot bring peace to a troubled conscience, and it can't reconcile us back to God. The apostles regularly associate Christ's coming with our sin. I want to read for you just briefly uh, something that, that Paul wrote, something that Peter wrote, and something that John wrote, and they all have a theme to them. This is Paul. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And Peter said, for Christ died for sins once for all. And then John says, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. All three linking the death of Jesus to our sins. Make no mistake, Christ died as a sin bearer. A sin bearer. Now, I want you to kind of lock into that word this morning. I want that, that phrase, sin bearer to be on your mind listen to for uh, to peter he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by his wounds you have been healed that's a weird phrase to to bear sin it actually goes all the way back to the old testament to the book of leviticus also to the book of numbers where they would talk about an offender um, who who had sinned, and, it, and they would talk about the fact that he had to bear his iniquities. Now, iniquities is just a word that means sin, just a big, long word that basically means transgressions or sin. Leviticus says, if a person sins and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though he does not know it, he is guilty and will be held responsible. The Revised Standard Version says this, he is guilty and shall bear his iniquities. What does that mean? That means that, that he will suffer the, the consequences. He is responsible for his behavior. The idea of something or someone else accepting the responsibility of bearing the consequences of our sin is further seen in the law of Moses. God said that the sin offering was given to make atonement for the sins of the entire congregation. On the day of atonement, Aaron was, was to lay hands on a goat he was to physically put his hands on a goat on the head of a goat uh, what we would come to know as the scapegoat that's where we get that phrase the scapegoat identifying himself and the people with this animal and he was to confess his sins as he had his hands on that goat's head he was to confess his sins and he was to confess the sins of all the people and thus transferring the sins of the people to that goat then they would shoo that goat into the wilderness and it would go off and carry the sins of the people off into the distance and then we read in leviticus chapter 16 
the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place and the man shall release it in the desert from this we learn that to bear somebody else's sin is to become the substitute to bear the penalty of his sin in his place it's like hebrews 10 4 says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins so in isaiah the suffering servant is described in intentionally sacrificial terms now what we're going to do now is i'm going to read to you from isaiah chapter 53 and it would be really easy as i start to read this for your mind to wander it would be really easy for you to think oh he's going to read a long passage of scripture and i'm just going to check out please don't do that please please dial in right now and listen as as isaiah prophesies about what will happen in the in the new testament with jesus this is isaiah 53 verses 3 through 11 he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering like one from whom men hide their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows yet we considered him stricken by god smitten by him and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed we all like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all he was oppressed and afflicted yet he did not open his mouth he was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is silent so he did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment he was taken away and who can speak of his descendants for he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of many people he was stricken he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death though he had no had done no violence nor was any deceit found in his mouth yet it was the lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer and though the lord makes his life a guilt offering he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the lord will prosper in his hand final verse after the suffering of his soul he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities so when jesus the messiah finally appeared he was greeted by john the baptist and when he was greeted he was greeted by these very extraordinary words listen to the way john the baptist introduces jesus look the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world it harkens back to that goat it goes all the way back to that transfer the atonement of the people as this as this goat carries off the sins and in john refers to jesus as the lamb that takes away the sin of the world and so he came back we come back to peter's expression he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree he isn't simply content to take uh, our nature upon him but he also took our sin upon him he wasn't simply made flesh in mary's womb but he was made sin on the cross on our behalf that last phrase comes from paul in second corinthians when paul is affirmed that god refused to charge our sins to us that is a beautiful thought that god does not charge our sins to us in his completely undeserved and and uh, uh, in his completely undeserved grace and love god has done a remarkable thing 
He would not make us answerable for our own sins. You think about what happens to you on a daily basis. Think about just, I mean, we can all do this, okay? It's not just you. I'm not pointing a finger. This is all of us. All of us could sit here this morning and recount and relive all the different ways that we have let God down. And what God comes back and says is, I will not count that against you. I will not hold that against you. I have taken steps. I have gone to great lengths to make sure that that sin, whatever it is, whatever thing props up in your world, I've made sure that that's been dealt with. He would not let it be said of us what was said in the Old Testament. They shall bear their iniquity. That's not said of us. Instead, what did he do? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. This is a beautiful passage of Scripture. Listen to this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of God the Bible tells us that on the day that Jesus was crucified at noon there was darkness that fell over the whole land and that darkness uh, remained until Jesus would pass away you wonder if anybody even spoke in the middle of that kind of darkness you wonder if if the darkness physically uh, reminded everybody of a, of a spiritual darkness that was going on and what was being accomplished on the cross. You just wonder if anybody really had anything to say. As all the sins of the whole world, sins past, sins present, sins that were, are yet to be committed, all sin was dealt with once for all on that day when Jesus was nailed to the cross. He took them. He took responsibility for your sins and for mine. Our sins, now think about this. We, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the scariest thought in the world. And we said the scariest thought in the world is that we could be separated from God. Do you know what happened to Jesus on the cross? When he took on the sin of the world, there was a time that he was separated from God. That you could, you could literally say that Jesus went to hell because he was separated from God and at that point that's when he cried out why have you forsaken me it's because God there was this estrangement it was was the penalty of sin and it's what Jesus had to go through on our behalf so that we would never have to know that Jesus went through that for us then he cried out it is finished then he said father into into your hands I commit my spirit and he died the work that he had come to do had been done our salvation had been completed Immediately, God made this declaration uh, with his own hand as he took the, the uh, temple curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies and it ripped from top to bottom. And it basically was a pronunciation that, that no longer would the, the pathway to God be uh, blocked. Would there, would there just be one person who could go to God on everyone's behalf? At that point, everybody had availability to God. Listen to how Peter puts it. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Don't miss what this means. It means that there is nothing that you or I can do to earn our salvation. That is very, very important. Nothing you or I can do will earn our salvation. I talk to adults from time to time. Kids don't have this problem. 
When we talk to kids about coming to Christ, they don't, they're not all hung up on the idea that they've got to earn their way to salvation. That's something that we learn as we become adults. We learn that if we want a paycheck, we've got to work for a paycheck. We learn that if we want a, a meal, we're probably going to have to pay for that meal. You know, your mama taught you, taught you, and she was probably right, no such thing as a free lunch. There really isn't, is there? And so when we start talking about grace and forgiveness and salvation and, and new life in Christ, we start to think about all these things, and we think, well, what can I do to earn that in fact I had an adult look at me one time when I went through this whole thing and he said what can I do to get saved I said you got to understand there's not anything you do to get saved he said well I got to be able to do something I said no you, you don't do anything it's all been done for you I know I've said this before but I'll say it again the only difference between us and every other world religion are two letters of the alphabet N and E because in every other religion it's what's been it's what in every other religion it's what you do but in Christianity, it's what's been done for you. You can't do it yourself. And this one adult, when I went through this whole deal with him, talked about the, the idea that you can't earn your salvation. He said, I, I can't do that. I've got to be able to earn my way. And I said, you, you're, you're never going to earn your way. You're never going to be good enough. You're never going to behave well enough that you're going to deserve going to heaven. It's never going to happen like that. He said, I, that's just so foreign to me. One of my favorite passages of Scripture, and I memorized it a different way than you're going to see it here, so I'm going to read it to you. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture because this, in one passage, sums up everything that's going on in Jesus. And I, I would challenge you to commit this passage to memory. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for no reason. I learned it like this. I do not nullify the grace of God because if righteousness could come through the law, then Christ died for no reason. Christ did not die for no reason. Christ died because you and I cannot keep the law. Christ died because we cannot be good enough. Christ died because every day we wake up, we have a sin problem. Every day we go through life, we at some point are going to let ourselves, let our families, let God, let everybody around us down. We live in a curse on a cursed planet. Andy Stanley says every day something, you get by through the day and something bad doesn't happen to you, you got away with something because we live on a cursed planet. Sin is everywhere. We step in it all the time. It follows us. It hounds us. We commit sin constantly. I do not nullify the grace of God because if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for no reason. There is healing through the wounds of Jesus. There is life in his death. There is pardon through his pain. And there is salvation through his suffering. We've been talking about Christ and about his resurrection and about the cross. And today we talk about this idea that he became sin on our behalf. So that we don't have to bear the burden. We don't have to bear the responsibility of our own downfall. That, that is beautiful that is the message of christianity that is what separates us from every other world religion that's out there because you don't hear that message anywhere else the idea of grace i've used the little acrostic god's riches at christ's expense that's what grace is god's riches at christ's expense it's available to you if you've never given your life to christ it's available to you you can know christ you can know eternity. You can know freedom. You can know forgiveness. It's a matter of placing your faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And if you've never done that, I invite you to do that this morning when we stand and sing. Let's pray.
pray together and then you'll have an opportunity to respond to Christ. Father, we love you. We, we remember this morning the price that was paid. We remember the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, a, a hideous, horrible way to die. We remember that he suffered and he bled and he died. And then we are reminded that all that happened not because he did anything wrong, but because we are sinful people. And that for a period of time, Jesus experienced a separation from you. And as close a fellowship as the two of you have, I just can only imagine how excruciating that was for Jesus. Father, he experienced the consequences of our sin. It should have been ours. We are the ones who should have received death, but instead we receive life. We come to you boldly, even as we pray just now. We lift our heads and we approach you with great confidence, knowing that you want us to come. You want to hear from us. You want us to cry out. You want us to confess our sin because you have forgiven us. You have healed us and you have made a way through Jesus. Father, I pray this morning that, that uh, someone has had their heart touched by the message that Jesus Christ suffered and died for them and that they no longer will ever have to bear the consequences of their sin eternally, but that through Jesus we, we now have a, the promise of an eternity with you. And the scariest thought in the world that we would spend an eternity apart from you cannot be applied to us. Thank you, God, for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for visiting. We hope you've been encouraged. Please feel free to visit us online at clcchurch.com.